podcast series is sponsored by the British Army Innovation Team. This team is set up to encourage and facilitate innovation across the Army and supports wider defence initiatives too. One of their projects, the Army Battle Lab, is due to open this year in the southwest of England. If you would like further information about this project, why not get in touch directly with the team via the show notes? Welcome to this Waver Room podcast series, which focuses on defence's language of change. This series seeks to explore some of the key ideas about change. What does it actually mean to innovate? Are we less adaptive and agile than in the past? What does it mean to empower? And most importantly, why is any of this different from what has gone before? This series aims to understand what we mean by some of those defence buzzwords we keep hearing over and over again. Over the next few weeks, look forward to hearing from a whole host of different people from the military, the academic world, industry and also the sporting world to understand their views on this language of change, which has dominated military conversations for decades. We are delighted on our first episode to welcome Professor Peter Roberts. Peter is currently the Director of Military Sciences at the Royal United Services Institute in London. A former Royal Naval Officer in the Warfare Branch, Peter has served as a Commanding Officer, a National Military Representative and has served with the US Coast Guard, US Navy and US Marine Corps. With NATO and Five Eyes roles in the past and previously the Rusi Research Fellow for Sea Power and C4 ISR, Peter hosts the excellent podcast series titled The Western Way of Warfare. So, Peter, welcome. We're going to ask the same question to all our guests to kick us off. Pete, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but with your decades of experience of trying to understand and decipher defence thinking, if you had to advocate for one defence buzzword, what would that buzzword be and why? So, firstly, thanks thanks for inviting me on. A great privilege. But this question really caused me some... Some problems in thinking about it because I, I don't really like buzzwords. So I thought, you know, what, what should it be? So, and I, you know, you play around with it. You know, should it be simplicity or winning? Because that sounds good, doesn't it? Or courage. I thought about the F-bomb because that is just so military that the F-bomb should be the single buzzword we're allowed. I also went with bullshit because we should all have a bullshit buzzer on our desk. And I think that'd be fair. In the end, I opted for calibre, which you can think about. You know, this might be people or approach, but actually the calibre I'm talking about is the specified nominal internal diameter of a gun barrel bore. Now, to me, this this is cracking because this is about what we should be doing. It's about language that is accurate, it's clear, it's concise, and fulfils those three things that I was always told to speak with. It's accuracy, brevity, and clarity, right? The ABCs of military language. That's what we should be doing, and we seem to have forgotten about it. So for me, that buzzword would be calibre. But interesting that you've chosen something that, that focuses arguably on equipment rather than in people. But I suppose it does it, it bleeds across. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's the point, is that is that you get this both. I mean, whilst it is it is very direct, if you're going to use a buzzword, you want something that that hits across equipment, people and concepts. And the idea of calibre, you know, whether of people or ideas, the merit of them, as well as the reality, the the actuality of capabilities, to me is really important. Absolutely, I agree. Well, I still do wish that I'd gone for the F-bomb in some ways. (laughs) You could combine the two. It, uh, genuinely, it could do. It would have made, it made a really great start to the interview, right? You know, what, what is it? It's the F bomb. There we go. <laughs> 
So to the outsider, it looks like defence is really grappling with how it changes at the moment. There's a consistent churn of defence reviews and more initiatives than most will remember to look back at. Michael Fallon's Defence Innovation Initiative, Gavin Williamson's Transformation Fund. Is this, is this normal for there to be so many different initiatives going on at any one point? Is there precedent in what seems uh, like a lot of change? And how does it fit into what has occurred since you joined the Royal Navy? There seems to have been an enormous amount of, of these reviews recently. But I think if you look since 1960, maybe, and the defence estimates that we used to have, we do have a regular drumbeat of... of change programs coming out. And change is pretty normal in defence. I mean, it's something that militaries do, and they do it reasonably well. And to me, we're the difference is that I don't think we're at a level of change that lives up to the hype. I don't think that we're experiencing an era where things are changing faster than ever before. I think there's no evidence for that. Right beside me, because I knew you were going to ask this question, right beside me, I've got this great book by Robert J. Gordon, who tracks the progress of humanity and look specifically at, at how we have developed as humans and changed. And, you know, the the growth of humanity, the progress that we make, you know, is an interesting figure. And he puts it in economic terms, which is a useful indicator for how we're progressing. So he says, since the start of the information age in 1970, we've been progressing at about, you know, you know 0.6, 0.7% a year as humanity, which is, you know, interesting. But prior to that, between the era of about 1670 and 1970, during which we had the really enormous changes that humanity was experiencing in agriculture, in industry, in healthcare, in education. These were enormous changes. And humanity then was progressing at maybe somewhere between 1.9 and 2.6% a year. You know, enormous. And before that, we were down at, you know, the the 1%, so below 1%. So actually, this idea that we're experiencing change faster than ever before just doesn't track with history. It doesn't track with any kind of evidence whatsoever. So this language over, God, we're changing faster than ever before, you know, it's it's so confusing. How do we get over it? It's just not true. There's just nothing to it at all. So that said about, you know, this broad idea about, about change of humanity and how we're growing, there is something about the military which is about we enjoy change, actually. I mean, we drip about it the whole time. We moan about it. You know, it's a great thing to have a go at. But both in peace and in war, we like the change. We enjoy it. The intellectual challenge of coming up with a way to overcome an adversary is really important. I mean, if you look in peace at our changes... Aside from the defence review, in the 1980s, there was this stark alteration of the operating dynamics and concepts of fighting, you know, moving from attrition to manoeuvre. This was enormous. It was, it was huge. The arrival of tactical nuclear weapons, the arrival of precision, the new generations of air power, and a political willingness to challenge, particularly in the high north where you had the US Navy pressing into the bastion of the Soviet submarine fleet. I mean, this was a, a major, really significant shift in peacetime. Now, this change was Herculean. It was enormous. And in war, for militaries, you see something the same. We have differing approaches to campaigns in campaigns. 
even within theatres, you get different responses. You know, actions in Iraq didn't work for actions in Afghanistan in exactly the same way. They needed to be uh, worked separately. And indeed, during the campaigns, we had to have enormous change. I mean, really significant change. If you look at, you know, the experiences of the British charge of the Knights in Bajra, you know, the way they were operating there, you know, 2000, 2003, you know, up to maybe 2007, 2011. And then you look at the experience of how they were operating in Afghanistan. They were markedly different. You know, the changes that were required for units rotating through were enormous. Indeed, if you went on your first tour in Afghanistan in, I don't know, 2003, 2004, and then you went back, as so many people did, you know, later in the campaign, you would have seen enormous differences in how uh, the British Army was fighting. You know, really enormous changes. So we do experience these things. And actually, do you know what's the amazing thing? Is the British military, in people terms, is really good at it. We have been screwing with our people so often in so many ways, and that might just be, you know, how the manners, you know, have done the appointing and, and drafting requirements of individuals. But we've made people anti-fragile, this, this idea that we don't just ride with chaos, but actually that's where we thrive, that the British military has been screwing with its people so often that actually our people now thrive in chaos. They do better in chaos than they do in sort of barracks where they have to abide by a set of rules and very normalised set of performance standards. They do better when they're riding this liminal wave of change. And I think that's the, that's the exciting part. But I would go back to that base point. I don't think things are changing faster than ever before. I think we're in a period of stagnation, but we might see huge changes approaching as we start to you know, get through the 2020s and into the 2030s. Peter, it's really interesting that, you, that you, you bring up the tyranny of the now, essentially, that we continually seem to be living in. Uh, you brought up examples from all the way back to 1670. I, I think that's, that's fascinating. Uh, you really don't have to go far to see even our own current records of how we continually talk about how we're living in the in the fastest change that's ever been going on. I've been working my way through Max Hastings' tome on Vietnam. And, right, uh, yeah. You know, again, there's, you know, there's extracts from the from the Joint Chiefs of Staff talking about how the change is happening so much. And even what you were just saying there, you know, I mean, how, how much did the US military have to change between the end of the Second World War, the Korean War, and then the type of warfare they fought in Vietnam. And, and they were fighting different ways. You know, there was an incredible experience, a uh, series of books that I was reading about a career and how the, the US had to repurpose Second World War gear for Korea because it served them better in the kind of fight they were doing there than, than it would have worked in than it would have worked in Europe against the Soviet forces there. And the same thing in Vietnam. Actually, what they needed for close air support in Vietnam was very different from the, you know, star fighters and phantoms that they were using in the European theatre. So, you know, these these are changes. They're specific, they're contextual through 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 lots of different campaigns. And it doesn't mean that you have to go for one perfect, beautiful answer that will give you a false design that will meet every possible eventuality. We're, we're not going to be there. Well, when we try to do that, we, we roundly waste money and get it wrong, I think. Or <laughs> uh, <laughs> we frustrated with, this, with the beautiful stuff that we procured when it doesn't do all the things that we want it to do later. Because it- and I guess, you know, that's, that's one of the problems is, is 
often we buy stuff at the moment because it's out there and it sounds really good. And I don't think we have a, a way of, of using it or a concept of how we want to use it. It's, it's, it's a really challenging problem at the moment for, for people procuring stuff, right? Oh, absolutely. So do you think we would benefit then um, from having a more US style a quadrannual every four years they have a defense review that's set in stone on a cycle rather than our reviews are less set in stone aren't they they more kind of fit in with when governments change yeah i mean you know we're, we're supposed now to i think it's every four years we're, we're thinking about having them we tend to have them more often but uh, one of the problems with with uh, our set defense reviews is is that you know things change a couple of years later, and do you have to wait to do your major defence review, or do you change in the meantime? If you go back to you know what was widely lauded as a as a almost perfect defence review, amusingly in 1998, George Robinson's defence review, and it set up the UK for a sort of you know force for good Blair Chicago speech, you know perfect interventions, peacekeeping roles around the world. It was absolutely lovely, but you know a couple of years later, 9/11 happens. Hmm. which really changes absolutely everything. We go from an era where we're doing little operations in Sierra Leone, we're doing peacekeeping in Bosnia and Kosovo, and we're changed suddenly into major large-scale warfighting in 03. We're doing uh, major counterinsurgency and CT operations globally. You know, this is this was a distinct shift in how we did it. I remember driving in 1999 into the US dockyard and, you know, right up to a carrier. No one checked your ID card. You just, we were in a high car and you drive all the way through up to the brow in effect, of a US carrier. And there were a couple sat alongside. And that was what we did. Now, you you roll that on two years, you wouldn't even get near it. The airspace was closed. You couldn't fly over it. You know, th- this, is, this is really, really different. So, you know, I, I do think there is a problem with, you, you know, us saying, absolutely, we set it in stone. But likewise, you know, what's the trigger for calling a defence review? And when should it be conducted? I mean, ideally, when a government takes office, it should have this policy lined up, right? You would expect them to say, here are our foreign policy objectives, here are our strategic objectives, and this is how we think the military fits into it, the Home Office fits into it, the the Overseas Development Aid Fund fits into it. This is how we stack this up, and therefore rollouts within a couple of uh, months at least, you know, uh, at the maximum, your defence review. That's what it should look like. And then give you know, funding certainty. Now, the funding certainty is really, really important, and, and no one can undo this. The, the flip-flopping over money makes defence a very, very expensive business. And there are NAO reports that back this up and House of Commons Defence Committee reports that do it. There's think tank reports that do it. You know, The, the idea that you can prevaricate until a defence review to make spending decisions makes stuff more expensive to give them. And if you don't deliver on those promises of funding – then stuff gets even more expensive and you end up with a huge black hole in your funding mechanism, which, funny old thing, the UK has a habit of doing. So we end up in a, in a really difficult situation. You know, How often do you do it? The one thing you do need is a long-term spending commitment. And maybe that is a four or five-year thing. But that's absolutely clear is you need to put that in stone and lay it down. You need to put it in law so that actually you give not just the military, but you also give industry – a driver on how to deliver this stuff. 
So do you think that needs to be delivered with cross-party agreement, essentially? So your, your big projects, things like carrier strike, is that the sort of thing that should be should be done on a, I guess, a, a non-partisan basis? Agree? You, you you would hope so, right? I mean, that's hmm. that's 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 the ideal. Whether it's a good idea or not, you know, the, the politicians should agree to it. But at the end of the day. You know that's not the way our our, our political uh, constitution works. It, it, the defence policy and the budgets are set by the government in power, and and effectively the military, like every other department, gets to suck it up. You know, and if the health service gets cut by one government, the health service has to suck it up, and the government has to live with their financial envelope that they've set. That's you know they lose power and things change. So. So I don't think it can be a cross-party support, and I think they do need to be reviews. But the government needs to take ownership for the additional costs that are put in. The idea that you can, you know, that you can just inject a bunch of cash into the British military, like now, sixteen and a half billion pounds, that new money that gets injected, that's not going to cure any problems in the British military. I think we need to be pretty clear about that. That there is nothing that that is going to fix. It's going to sort out equipment problems in ten years' time. But the near-term problem is really massive, which is why we're going to see short-term problems, as we always do in defence reviews, because we promise a bunch of stuff about change. So, Pete, we've talked an awful lot, and you've been pretty clear that your view on the pace of change is that actually it's not really that different at all. But would you agree that there are there are a whole... There are a whole set of new uh, domains emerging, so space, cyber, the cognitive domain people talk about as well. And there's a whole new uh, there's a whole new list of expected tasks for the military to do. Do you, do you think we're adapting quickly enough to those new domains and potentially new, new potential new challenges? Yeah, there's I don't know. There, there's this great argument, isn't there, that 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 there are sort of four or five sets of people who are in the defence argument at the moment. There's there's the there's the change agents, you know, the, the futurists who think that everything is changing faster than ever before. And and their idea of the future and how they should change and what should be a domain and what shouldn't is led by some science fiction writers, really. I mean, it's P.W. Singer and August Cole. They're driving the doctrine and domain agenda of Western militaries. That's That's where it is. Then you have the sort of the Colin Gray School, which is, you know, Things aren't changing that quickly. This is all a little bit of smoke and mirrors. Actually, there's a lot more continuity to this than we like to see. We just need to have a bit of perspective and step back from some of the problems. I think I sit within that camp that there's, you know, that, that there is change. There's always change, but it's not fundamental in nature, that it's not faster than ever before, and that we need to think about how we are going to do this. So, you know, the idea about cyber, for example, you know, we've been using cyber weapons. I think the first recorded cyber weapon was in the 1960s by the FBI in a sting operation with the Soviet Union. I mean, it was a, you know, it was a brilliant operation. We've been doing them fairly consistently since then. And we've got a fairly good idea of what they are. This idea that suddenly it's, it's an enormous change to what we're doing, I'm not sure is the case. And I think we've not been very smart about how we have 
adapted to that in the same way with you know space it's been up there for years we've been putting military satellites in space right i mean it's there are depending on how you define it weapons in space and there have been for decades so none of this stuff is particularly new and again i'm not sure that our knee jerking towards it is has been a particularly good idea in the same way with you know our idea about ai you know crikey there we go there's a new domain ai let's sprinkle ai on everything and everything will become absolutely fabulous you know this the 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 small pieces of understanding really does damage i think to the longer term intellectual problem which some parts of the british military are really good at dealing with I look at the concepts where I've been engaged with the concepts team in Andover for, what, five years now, and they've done some genuinely really, really good, deep, long-term research that brought them out to CFL 35, right, Conceptual Force Land 2035. It's a really, really good document. It's backed up by years and years of evidence. It's been war game, trial, tested. It stood the rigour of, you know, academic challenge. It, it is it has been through numerous tests and games. It has stacked up really well. You know, genuinely, it's a really good answer to what we think the future looks like. And then from that, you get to a roadmap that comes back. Now, when I look at CFL 35, I think, you know, that is something that, that you can go to and admire. You can't admire much from DCDC, but you can admire CFL 35 genuinely. I think it's a good piece of work. And yet, if I go to the RAF or the Royal Navy, there's nothing similar. Nothing absolutely zip their idea of 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 you know future force design and understanding the future is effectively a series of capital replacement programs based on the whole life or the or the airframe life of of what they've got the the idea then that they would go to i don't know august cole or or some people and get them to write some some fiction about what the future looks like and that will solve their problems about how they fight in the future and what it should look like i mean you know it's embarrassingly poor so so are we are we doing well on this? I think some parts of the British military are, and I think there are some elements and some areas who are doing some really, really good and interesting work. There are pieces of DCDC that, that do actually deliver some really interesting stuff on uh, EM, for example. There's some really good thinking out there. But what we're not doing is we're not putting it all together. It's not coming on at the same pace or the same rate. And so I don't think we are thinking about this well enough. I don't think we've got a, a wide enough approach to it. And I think we are we're too faddist in our response in the UK military. So what do you think we do about that? I think it requires some intellectual leadership. What I think is a, is a really good programme, so the Agile Warrior stuff, the concept stuff that happens in Andover, you know, that stuff, and we need to mainstream it. We need to ensure that the others play catch up with it too, and we need to give it a voice. We need to make it slightly independent so it doesn't succumb to it. It needs to, you know, maybe sit under vice chief rather than anyone else, as, as DCDC used to do. We need to give it genuine freedom rather than saying that it's got to conform to the wishes of all single services and, and, uh, and cross government and it must represent all the views and it you know and therefore it, it descends into what is accepted the lowest common denominator rather than something that is genuinely conceptual and challenging and testing which is what i think we always wanted it to be but what the uk military doesn't have a very good history of doing i mean if you go back to 
where we were with, you know, when, when Basil Little Hart and JFC Fuller, I mean, these guys didn't come in because it, they weren't so transformational because the British military were good at it. They came in and were transformational because the British military weren't good at it. And we always have this, we always have this problem that actually changing stuff inside the tent is really, really difficult for lots of good reasons. And sometimes you need an external change agent to shake things up a bit. I think the army strategy is in a really good place. The, the problem is, is that the is the air force and the navy have no strategy, no, and and yet they're the ones seem to be doing well out of a financial settlement. Now, you know, the problem is a financial settlement doesn't make doesn't put you in a good place, you know, intellectually. It might put you in a good capital place, but but you know, genuinely, you're screwed because you have no no idea of what you want to do with your kit. I think the the, the problem the army is always going to have is it's really really easy to to demonstrate that you know here's a boat here's an airplane but here's a battalion well that could be smaller that could be bigger that what is that you know it's, it's very difficult to explain that to the people who have to hold the purse string i think that choices are now not between platforms and people i think that's the <coughs> that choice has gone away i think the choice is now that people are arguing is between technology or digitization and people uh, and I think there are some really good examples of, you know, for Boris Johnson, when he went into a hospital, did did he want an AI system set in front of him in an iPad where he could type in his name? Or did he want a doctor and some nurses yeah. to pick him up and take him to a bed and treat him? You know, that that's the difference. Uh, and I think once, I think that's why he gets it. But I, I think lots of people still are seduced by this idea of technology, but we might get onto that. All three services bang on all the time about it's our people that make the difference, but the focus seems to be on equipment continually. Big, big ticket items, always, mm. always, always, always amazing. Yeah. And yet the US has a completely different culture around its relationship with its people you know, in the military. Mm. Uh, and, you know, and it's not because they're a bigger part of society, because they're not a bigger part of society. You know, it, it's not suddenly, you know, massive and disproportionately different to what we got here. And yet their relationship between the society and the military is just distinctly different. Oh, yeah. And it is about the people. It's much less about, I mean, they're, they're proud of seeing, you know, new F-35s or a new carrier, or whatever else. But actually, most of that press is bad news about equipment you know, mm. for whatever reason, it's failed here or it's not got through there or, you know, the latest ship's not working or whatever. None of the, none of the equipment stuff is good news in the US, mm. but the people stuff is all good news. Mm. I'd like some of that over here. That'd be nice. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's, let's go back onto it. So as this podcast title suggests, we really want to dig into the language that we are using across the UK military to articulate change. One of our writers last year said that this language of change has become increasingly impenetrable, going on to say, not everything can be adaptive, innovative, transformative and modernized. And that's before we get on to the game changers, wise pivots and moonshots. Is this criticism fair or is this just representative of any large organization that's that's trying to change? Yeah, I think there's a tension there, isn't there? I mean, yeah. The, the military has always had its own language, and indeed the army has a different language than the navy. The bootnecks just speak a different language altogether. You know, and submariners, you know, it's it is even more impenetrable than anyone else. But the reality is, is that the military headquarters language has has changed again over the past ten or fifteen years, and and in you know my experience, this is about trying to 
adopt a business language that actually has little transferability into defense. The military is not a business. It doesn't have a profit and loss account because warfare doesn't do profit and loss accounts as they do in business. And the idea in business of efficiency is the antithesis of everything about warfighting. Business concepts just don't transfer to the military. And so trying to shoehorn this language into the military makes it seem, well, it's just frankly inappropriate. So we do end up with military people who know what they're talking about in terms of warfighting sounding really rather ridiculous when they start to spout business language. And in doing so and trying to explain it, it really loses the audience. Now, that's not just it loses the military audience or it loses the industrial audience or it loses the political audience. It loses everyone. You hear some you know, senior military officers talk, I cannot understand what they say. Their sentences make no sense whatsoever. It has become so riven with, with buzzwords that we've really lost that ability to speak with clarity. Now, these are the same people who then start to worry about why we don't have support or understanding from society or our, our political masters. And, and that's surely the answer, is that we don't speak with accuracy, brevity and clarity. We have stopped giving military advice and we're now giving what feels like business language advice that we don't really understand anyway. So I don't think we are doing particularly well at the moment at this. I think we need to really go back to some of George Orwell's writings to understand, you know, actually we need to be much clearer in our language, much more simple in our approach. So be more straightforward, use clearer, more simple language. I think, yeah, it's, it's like simplicity. That was why I was I was thinking about, you know, that first question, those first words. Simplicity was really, really important and simplicity in planning, simplicity in procurement, you know, all these things would be would be really useful if we just underpinned all of our approach with this idea of simplicity. You know, if I can't explain something to my wife, then she makes me rewrite it, right? I mean, it just, you know, we can't, we don't express this same thing. You don't go back to your wife and talk about transformation programs, at least I hope you don't. I mean, you know, I would, I would, I, I, she would staple me to the ceiling. It is just a, it's a ridiculous set of concepts to have. We don't have these. Why would we possibly put that in the public domain? Why would we have that conversation with the press and think that'll sound good to the general public? I mean, it's yeah, surely we don't think that way at all. No, and I think we have to then spend time unpicking it to explain it to our own people as well. Yeah, which makes it even worse, right? We if we can't explain it to our own people and we own that audience, then you know we're in a bit of trouble. Fair enough. I suppose the only thing I'd say contrary to that is there is a danger that we can fall into using our using our own military speak. So I can understand why we might want to try to talk to some people in their language. And perhaps that's where we're getting it wrong, where we're trying to communicate to politicians who maybe have a business background in business speak rather than in military parlance that, that they lose. There is space for exploring, you know, ideas and language for elsewhere. Don't get me wrong. We need to, you know, broaden our inputs and grow diversity. You know, the, these are important things in language. But the fact that we're asking people to speak in English you know, with with you know clarity and accuracy and brevity, means that you open the audience to everyone. It doesn't mean that you sound stupid, which I think is what people worry about. It means that you sound really clear and concise and lucid. It means that you're able to express your arguments really clearly. And and just by dressing stuff up with meaningless 
business speak and jargon really doesn't help. And and it, you know, this the ability to talk clearly gives you cross audience, you know, input and and you can just talk to people and surely that's what's important. Well, I agree. Definitely. Right. Depends on several initiatives which try to generate change. Now, I, I think there's a basic tension when you want to try and generate change and innovation. Defence currently tries to do that by imposing new structures on top. So we have organisations like DASA, the Defence and Security Accelerator. We have the J-Hub. We have the Army Innovation Branch. We have all sorts of different parts of of the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force that all are about innovation. So there's centralised innovation, centralised change. But change should also be business as usual, as we've talked about in this interview already. Uh, We are changing all the time, and we're used to it. We're comfortable with it. So to get the most out of changing, do you think it's best centralised or is it best distributed? Yeah, in a typical cop-out answer, I'd say you can do it both ways. I think the problem is, is, is the usual military problem of not following through. The idea that you can, you can only do change in one way is wrong. You can do change in a whole variety of ways. Uh, and it depends on the context and the problem and all sorts of variables. But... What you have to do is when you come up with a solution about changing is you have to run it from start to finish. Now, the military tends to be really, really good at starting stuff, right? We're really, really good at starting stuff. We'll shut lots of other things and start this new initiative. But then, you know, maybe a year, maybe a year and a half in, the people running it will change. And the new people that come in will have a slightly different idea and the money will be taken for a different initiative. And that that will be the one that's then pushed forward by a new set of people in a new area. And you fail to realize the benefits of your change. And this is one of the reasons why change can be unsuccessful is because you won't follow through and deliver on those objectives absolutely at the end. Uh, And again, this can be a question of leadership. It can be a question of support. But the reality is it's about wanting to ensure that you deliver on a plan and being funded to do so and making sure that any new plan that comes in is deconflicted. Do you think part of this is a structural problem with the military's posting system? I I think all three services basically run two-year rotations. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, you're absolutely right. And I was I was talking to Ambassador Ryan Crocker about this uh, recently. So he he spent his entire career in the Middle East, and he said, "Listen, there there is a massive difference between a career politician who spends their life in in and around the area, who becomes absolutely acclimatised to every single nuance in different ruling parties in different uh, countries, that will spot the changes and and understand the the buzz and the background noise that that runs with it, and." someone who piles in for six months or even a year or even three years and then disappears again you know that actually they are a uh, they're a speck on a on a really significant timeline and they could do more damage than good and i think that works um for militaries as well and it, it works not just in change programs it works in manning it works in capability development it works in long-term planning it works in headquarters that actually when you get the right people in the right spot who are actually delivering stuff the one thing you want to do is retain them there but for but but for reasons and good reasons, historical reasons about how we reward people, we can't let those people stay in the same place. 
So, you know, the commanding officer of a warship in the UK it really needs to tick off a, a few things. They need to be worked up, they need to do a maintenance period, and they need to deploy. And once that's done, they need to get out. And none of that is about command. None of that is, is actually about caring and maintaining and developing your unit. You know, a company commander can be an absolutely brilliant company commander. You want to keep them forever, right? But if they're a really good company commander, the one thing you're not going to do is keep them there forever because you want them to move on. They've ticked and, and done that box. And it does a disservice to everyone. So in many ways, I think we have slightly got this the wrong way round. in that provided we can keep people in the right place and find different ways to reward them. I know, you know there's Project Castle, which you know m- might try and get to this. But, you know, we need to find other ways of rewarding people and keeping them in the same position because that continuity is really, really important in change programs, but also in all our business as usual. So recently you discussed innovation fatigue in your podcast series. Something you didn't discuss in that series is where that fatigue might sit. You could have a guess and there is a level of disbelief or confusion internally within defence, especially as we're running this podcast series with, uh, you know, on this language of change. But what's your view and could you expand on how wider industry and academia views the military when we have more press releases and speeches that explain the virtues of innovation and how we can leverage or utilise new changes to be decisive? When innovation came about as a buzzword for the British military. It followed about, I don't know, the, the US had started talking about it maybe a year beforehand. And suddenly this became the one thing that was going to be the cure-all. And I think there were some some people who sat at the top of the single services who recognised that innovation was going to be where money was sown. And so individuals single service commands set up innovation hubs very few of them had anything to do with innovation as a definition at all and in fact when i was at a, a rather wonderful seminar with a bunch of industry and uh, and some senior military from across the three services you know when the industry team turned around and said you know go, well, i just just don't think that we're talking the same language can you just define for me what innovation means and of course, the military defined innovation as, as sort of, you know, change. And, and that was about it. And it was dressed up in different language. But you know, it wasn't really innovation as industry understood it. And there was this sort of gasp of surprise from the industry participants who went, oh, OK, well, I, you know, that sort of explains it. You know, so we're just talking about change then. We get that. So then we can have a decent conversation. Uh, I, I guess a lot of people like me, as soon as you have that realisation, was bored we get bored by the language because you know it's dressing something up to be something it isn't. It, it can't be honest about the conversation. There's nothing wrong with things not being innovative, but still being good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But it, it would allow us to focus on innovations that are genuinely innovations, that are genuinely going to uh, allow money to be focused in that area. But to do all these things and dress them up as innovation, have innovation teams that aren't generally doing innovation, has led the, the just the very word of innovation to become quite toxic. And I think we've, you know, there's going to be a whole generation of military officers who exist and, and innovation is going to be a poisonous word for them for at least, you know, the next 20 years in the military. I mean, we've, we've just turned off a whole generation of people to this idea of innovation, even where we mean it in the right way. And I think that's, you know, that's one of those problems with language is we have to be really careful about how we use it. And I think innovation is, is one of those 
excellent examples over how to do it badly. People, ideas, technology, in that order, as uh, John Boyd said. When it comes to language of change, do you think that we've got the balance right? I sort of disagree with Boyd on this. I think for militaries, it shouldn't be people, ideas, technology. I think it should be ideas, people, technology. And that's not a very popular view because we like to put people up front, really, you know, front and centre, at least in language. But this is the military we're talking about. And at the end of the day, what we're about is death and destruction. And people are a resource that we are prepared to see used up. The reality of conflict are people are a resource. They die. They get injured. They move on. They're not there forever. And people are also required to follow orders, to do what civilians would think is the unthinkable. You know, we're asking 19-year-olds to stick a bayonet on the end of their rifle, to stand up and walk towards a machine gun. You know, these are the things we're asking people to do. And in that, I think the ideas are the critical part. The ideas which then galvanise the people, the levy en masse, Napoleon was a master at this, and then the technology which is subservient to both of those. It, It delivers the ideas and enables the people that sit behind it. So I think it's the other way around from that. The ideas are the critical part. You pull together what you want to do with the reality of what you have to do it. And... You know, do we get that right? Absolutely not. But are we alone in that? I don't think we are either. I think there are, you know, there are lots of states, there are lots of militaries that, that gets this mixed up really badly about not just people, ideas and technology or ideas, people and technology, not just about the order, but also what's in there. I think, you know, there's there's a lot of confusion about what sits in those three. Like Boyd, to me, identifies a great mix, but there are others you could put in there, right? Yeah, I mean, as you talk about, it, I'm wondering, you know, when he says ideas, does he mean, or do do we mean ideas as in ideals, in almost like the moral component of of fighting power, or are we talking concepts? Yeah, yeah I, this is this is a mix, and it's you know, yeah, because I think Boyd was focused mainly on on you know the operations and the planning. I think this is about you know the concept of operation, the the ideas of doing it. But you're right, you know, this is you know the values as well. And, you know, do the values attract the people? Is it about the ethics and the morals? You know, are they, how do they feed through to the people? And then how does technology enable those things together? I mean, it is a, it is a natural flow. But to me, I would reverse those first two. It's ideas, people and technology. And I would stand up and say, I think John Boy's wrong. Send in the hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have it redirected to you when it arrives. Thanks, mate. Yeah. No, no problem. The headline from this podcast, John Boyd is wrong. There we go. Send your answers on a postcard. <laughs> we've we've talked about yeah we've talked all the way through this about how this pace of change isn't necessarily something new and the organization you said right at the start you know we are used to chaos now so i suppose what i want to ask you is you know are we getting everything that we need out of people who are used to chaos is there a way that we can do a little bit more that allows us to 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 get some more to get more of a product out of people who are willing to change all the time i mean to me it, it strikes me that this is absolutely related to to that john boyd comment about you know ideas and people you know the, the idea that warfare and the battlefield is chaotic is not new, right? I mean, you know, Thucydides wrote about it, you know, Sun Tzu, you know, touched on it. The, the, the battlefield is chaos. And 
in a sort of romanticized understanding of post-Napoleonic warfare, the idea behind armies and military leaders is they can bring some kind of order to the chaos. That's what they do. They arrive, they provide stability, they set the ship on a level field and and you know and they then commence operations to go and you know win whatever they have to win. And and Lots of our military operations, you know, particularly in the you know twentieth and twenty first century, have been about that sort of change. Is that there is chaos? We aim to send the military in to provide stability. They go in, they fight the initial action, they calm it down, and then you know whether they nation build or something else. This is what we believe that they do. But the reality, and I think you know, for. You and others, you've served in, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, and and goodness knows where else, is that the fact that the army goes in or land forces go in doesn't stop the battlefield or the environment from being chaotic even after they've arrived, right? Indeed, in some cases, it becomes even more chaotic. So it's about how we get people to understand that chaos. Do we want people to go in there, the central idea that they arrive there to provide structure and order. Is that the role of militaries? You know, as in, you know, you're going into Haiti or you're going into Montserrat or wherever it is to provide disaster relief. You go in, you, you know, put your ship alongside, you land your aircraft, you establish your perimeter, you know, you start handing out aid, you do your surveys, you grow infrastructure projects, you know, that sort of order. Is that the sort of thing? Or... Do we want to grow people who go in and go, okay, this is utterly chaotic, but I can understand how I can achieve our ends in this. And that is within this chaos, it allows me the freedoms to go and do, to pay off this warlord, to go and attack that person that solves the problem that we have as a national policy objective. And I think that's the difference. It's It's going back to that idea first of how do we understand the problem? How do we understand the environment? And what do we want our people to be able to do? That's not just about being flexible and adaptable. It's about a sort of philosophy. It's about a theology of we what, how we want our military to be able to operate in this chaotic world. Well, I suppose we, we want them to be able to do, to do both, to be comfortable in that chaos, but then also when, when required, provide structure. I it's think. hard to think of it, isn't it? I mean, I think in an ideal world, you absolutely want to provide structure. I'm not sure what we think the scale of the problem is that the UK military can provide structure to now. <laughs> I mean, you know, and this is, this is, you know, we've got to have this generally honest, honest discussion because we can't just, you know, glibly go around saying, you know, well, you know, we can, we can go into Iraq and provide structure. No, we can go into Bajra and provide structure. No, we go to Helmand and provide structure. No. So where can we go and, and provide structure? Is it Sierra Leone? Is that the, should that be the limit of our ambition where we do it? Should it be about disaster relief? Because I can't see deploying the British army to Haiti after a disaster that it could provide sufficient structure that, that would underpin, you know, humanitarian assistance, disaster response, where, U.S. Southcom, the Southern Command, really had problems doing the same thing with all the resources they had available. I think we need to be quite honest about this. You know, where is it that we think we could provide the structure that we think you know is in keeping with our mass? And well, so it's interesting that you, you link it to mass because I think you can you could delink it from that. And I don't want to say mass, the, the size of the force. Let's try and mass. I, I feel like is one of those buzzwords that that generals use. So, but 
but can you delink it from from the size? Because a, a smaller country can be more complex and more chaotic than a larger one potentially you know, for for various different reasons. But could it be the stability that we can provide is uh, conceptual stability, as in an ability to plan, an ability to create small areas of stability within something? Uh, you know, for example, the the British military leaning in to help other government departments with planning COVID responses, not just during the response to COVID-19. We provided planning assistance during the 2012 Olympics. We regularly do it with all sorts of internal disaster relief isn't the right word, is it? But, you know, large internal events or large UK-based events, we the military provide planners to to add stability to people who don't normally plan stuff. So what I'm saying is that maybe even a small a smaller military can still provide useful structure to larger places. Yeah, I, I don't think you're wrong there. I think you know you absolutely can, but we just need to be realistic about what yeah. that is. And I think the problem is that sometimes we're not. We have this great can-do attitude, which says, "Yeah, yeah, we'll go out and do that. No problem. We can, we can, you know, bring disaster relief to Montserrat, and we can cure everything." And you know, and we can't. It's really difficult. And yet, we can do some things that are amazing. So, the, the, you know, there was that great TV show about one of the Bachelor Type Twenty Two frigates that went out to the Indian Ocean after. A, a hurricane had hit. They went to an island, and he saw this, you know, this doctor who went ashore and just looked at this and was very honest with the camera. And she said, you know, we are not going to be able to do anything here. You know, the size and scale of this problem is just, it's just huge. There's no way we're going to be able to touch this. But the ship's company went and they sorted one hospital. They they dug it out. They did the drainage. They set up a clinic. They, you know, they brought in food. They did fresh water, all the, the stuff that, you know, you would expect at a very small level. But that grew. And that that bringing structure to one small, very micro area had really significant impacts for the surrounding area because it brought stability and structure. And then you had governance that came in around it, that the local seniors of the villages came in, took over. And at the end of it, you know, this doctor went away and it was really revealing. I, I still remember it now. You know, the, this doctor turned around and goes, you know, genuinely, I never thought that was possible. I thought we were, we, we couldn't do it. So I do think we can do it, but we just need to be realistic mm. about what we're offering and not do the we can solve all the world's problems because you know as a medium sized power our footprint is still is today pretty small and i think on that bombshell we will uh, bring the interview to a close fantastic this podcast series is sponsored by the british army innovation team this team is set up to encourage and facilitate innovation across the army and supports wider defense initiatives too one of their projects, the Army Battle Lab, is due to open this year in the southwest of England. If you would like further information about this project, why not get in touch directly with the team via the show notes? Remember to subscribe to The Wavel Room through whoever your podcast provider is and comment and give us a rating too.